This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. My guest today, Bert Kearns, co-wrote the book The Show Won't Go On with Jeff Abraham, who is an entertainment publicist and comedy historian. Vanity Fair called the two of them show business and pop culture savants. Bert is a television and film producer, director, writer, journalist, and author of the controversial tabloid television memoir Tabloid Baby. His credits include Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, Kardashian, The Man Who Saved O.J. Simpson, and The Seventh Python, which is about Neil Innes. With two-time Academy Award winner Albert S. Ruddy, he co-wrote and produced the Burt Reynolds movie Cloud Nine. So for those reasons and many more, I'm very happy to welcome Burt Kearns to to StoryBeat today. Burt, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. So, all right, let's go back to a little bit of your beginning. When and where did you first... Uh, decide in your life that maybe entertainment was where you wanted to be and and that maybe writing is how you wanted to to live through that well you know writing was always my thing from the time i was a kid i was the writer the writer in school it was my dream from the time i was a kid to you know write that great american novel write 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 the book Um, i went to college and during college i wrote for local newspapers wrote wherever i could wrote essays etc and then my first job was at a small-town newspaper in Connecticut, right. the Ridgefield Press. Uh, the Ridgefield Press was part of a newspaper chain up in, uh, in Connecticut and in um, upstate New York. And I was a newspaper reporter there for about a year and a half and then became an editor of one of the papers in Wilton, Connecticut. And that was really my graduate school of just writing every day, writing feature stories, going to planning and zoning meetings, covering car accidents, covering small town. And that was journalism, not really so much entertainment, right? Right, that was journalism. I was, I was, I was a journalist. Um, from there, my dream was to move to New York City. It was about 60 miles outside of New York where I grew up. In, I was born in New York City, grew up in Connecticut. My dream was to eventually move to New York. Well, what happened was on December 7, 1980, John Lennon was killed. Uh. And when John Lennon was killed, I said, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm moving to New York. I went, went down to, to the Dakota that weekend for all, the, all the, the funeral, not festivities, but funeral services and things that were going on, memorials that were going on outside for John Lennon. Right. And then I moved to New York. Uh, my, my entree into New York was a promise to get a job at the Village Voice, the independent newspaper in New York City. I was going to be a copy editor as a way in. I'm the worst copy editor in the world. <laughs> I'm the worst proofreader there is. I always miss those little words. Uh, I didn't get a job at the Village Voice, but somehow serendipitously, through a, a college acquaintance, through, through a friend, 
I wound up getting a job on the assignment desk of the 10 o'clock news. Oh, yeah? Channel 5 News in New York. That's the independent, scrappy news uh, station there. As a, as a copywriter, or what were you doing? I got a job on the assignment desk, and that was sitting there with the assignment editor, listening to police radios and sending crews oh, and reporters out on I stories. See. I see. Now, one of the things that really came in handy was my experience of three years of working in local newspapers. I knew how to make a call. I knew how to set up a story. I knew what a story was. Within a couple of months, I was promoted to assignment editor. Then I became a writer for the 10 o'clock news. Then I became producer of the 10 o'clock weekend news. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically because of the preparation that I had before I came to New York. I didn't just show up and say, you know, give me a job. I sure. had experience in journalism. Of course. And then from there, I um, went on from, let's see, from Channel 5 News, I moonlighted over at CBS Network News. I worked as a writer on a show called um, Night, uh, Night Watch. That was later Charlie Rose took over Night Watch. That was like a, a middle-of-the-night show. I think it went on from 2 o'clock in the morning till 6 in the morning. Right. So I would leave work uh, at the 10 o'clock news at 11 o'clock, go across town, and then write for Night Watch all night, and then go back to work the next morning. So, so you weren't sleeping at that point? I didn't. I was young. I didn't really have to sleep too much. Right. <laughs> it was all right. Did, did, you, did you enjoy, well, I, I guess enjoy is the wrong word. Was it, I assume that it was something that was really inspiring to you. you. You probably learned a lot of stories doing that. Well, I'll tell you, working in New York City, in New York City at night, you know, when you're a news person, it's a whole, it's a whole other experience. It's, it's romantic. It's, it's journalism. It's, it's hard scrabble. It's, it's, it's great, especially working for a team like, you know, the 10 o'clock news. The 10 o'clock news was a newsroom of, of journalistic giants and not stars. From the 10 o'clock news, I wound up going over to WNBC News at 30 Rockefeller Center. Right. As a, first a news writer and then a producer of the shows there. Wow. And that was more... You know, much more commercial, and you're working with you know television stars. I was there. You know, I was producing the 10 o'clock news on the weekend when we got a new weatherman named Al Roker who showed up <laughs> in Cleveland. Right. And you know, worked with Al in those days, and worked with people who went, who went on, you know, as I did, into different directions. But working working in New York news was uh, quite an experience. I remember my first Christmas in New York. I was working on the assignment desk, working on Christmas morning, and I had to go to Central Park. They sent me up there because it was a skeleton crew on Christmas. And they sent me up to the north side of Central Park uh, to the lake there because there was a body in the lake. Ugh. And I had to be there when they fished out the body. You, you've been following dead people all your life. Yeah. Now, the reason, this is like, this is like a little um, macabre, um, black humor sort of uh, rule that was, that was in news at the time. And that was, if ever there was a murder in Harlem or in that area, you had to check on it because there was always the possibility that it could be a Kennedy. Oh. Because at that time, David Kennedy, who later died of a drug overdose down in, in Palm Beach, I believe, he was arrested for drugs uh, in a Harlem tenement at that point. Really? Uh, right around then. So it was always like, you got to go, you got to check, could be a Kennedy. That Christmas morning, it wasn't a Kennedy, it was a, a poor vagrant who slipped into the water uh, is it, i guess the the news business has long been if it bleeds it leads so you got to go after those stories right 
most definitely on the local news, and it, that hasn't changed. No. For all these years, yeah. No, it certainly hasn't. That's the sort of, I don't want to use the word formula, but it's a kind of a formula. If it's uh, nasty, gnarly, people get hurt, could get hurt, uh, they'll go after that first. Most um, definitely. So, so, so from there, how did you wind up in Hollywood? All right, here we go. So I went over to, worked at, I was, was at NBC News for about five years. While I was there, Rupert Murdoch took over Metro Media News. And where I used to work at the 10 o'clock news now became a very different kind of 10 o'clock news run by Rupert Murdoch's Australians. Right. And while they were there, they started a show called A Current Affair. Yes. Which was really the first tabloid television news magazine show. So a lot of the people that I worked with back in the early 80s at Channel, Channel 5 were now working for the Australians. And they said, man, you've got to come over here. You're going to love these guys. I mean, they're, they're brilliant. They're hilarious. There's a lot of, they do things that no one would ever think of doing in news. So I went over, and I was basically kidnapped by the Australians at <laughs> the end of 1988. Uh, there was a guy named Peter Brennan, one of the most brilliant minds in television. Peter was the uh, architect and the executive producer of A Current Affair. And the new guy that had taken over above Peter had said, look, we've, we just lost uh, our two producers of the show. Peter runs the show. He's brilliant. But the, the problem is, is that he doesn't like to work in the office. He does all the work from the bar across the street. Oh. <laughs> and that's sort of his office. And so what we need you to do is to go over to the bar, deal with him, and then take everything from the bar and put it into action in the studio and in the newsroom. So I wound up spending the next several years in bars wow. with Australian journalists and Peter Brennan. In 1990, Peter left uh, a current affair to go to Hollywood, to go to the Paramount lot to take over a show called Hard Copy. Yeah. And I went with Peter and took over Hard Copy. And, we were, and that's how I wound up in Hollywood. Literally, on the Paramount lot, uh, where all the Jerry Lewis movies were made. And yes. Where Star Trek was, was being made at the time there, the, the revival of Star Trek. So Sunset we were, Boulevard. We were, we were right there. It was just like once upon a time in Hollywood. And, and, and so, so that was a pretty um, quick introduction into the real world of Hollywood, into the big world. Yes. You didn't... And the you politics didn't... of Hollywood, because we were working under really studio rules, was very different than, than working... Uh, for a news organization, sure. Uh, hard copy was a you know a news magazine show, but really it was an entertainment show, and it was considered entertainment. And we were working under a whole different set of rules and and politics out in Hollywood. But so you, it was but, really a um, baptism by fire. I bet it was, and and it it certainly has got to be a well. I know for a fact it was a had to have been a very different world and almost a culture shock to go from the mean streets of New York onto a studio lot like that, which is a lot more. Uh, pleasant place to be. Yes, we couldn't believe things like showing up in the morning and they had food laid out for everyone. It's like, what? <laughs> you're, you're spending money on food and you're paying for people's coffee? What is this? <laughs> in New York? Yeah, in or New York. You're trying to find a place to live. It's like, this, this house is too big. I can't live in a place this big. I just need to <laughs> a room in a kitchenette in New York. <laughs> All right, so so th- at what point did you transition over toward more of the entertainment side? Well, beginning with hard copy, we started doing a lot more entertainment-type shows. We would, for instance, 
look, looking to separate ourselves from the other news and tabloid shows, we would do shows like The Last Days of Elvis Presley and bring actors in and reenact them almost as mini-movies. Right. We would take actual news stories, like there was a woman named Betty Broderick who became famous because she was married to a doctor, and she basically supported him through medical school, supported him through the early years of his practice, and then when he got into middle age, he left her for his nurse, or his, his assistant, and Betty Broderick went in there and shot them both up and killed them, went on trial, and wound up being the subject of, I think, three television movies starring Meredith Baxter Burney. Was, was, this, was this Dr. Herman Tarnauer? No, no, that's back to the old current affair days. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the Scarsdale Diet Doctor. Oh, yes. What, so what, what was the name of this doctor? Uh, well, it was Dr. Broderick. It was Betty. Oh, Doc, I knew. see. I and see. And we, we originally did a half hour, I believe we did several shows on it, and we called it A Woman Scorned. And we did it sort of as a <laughs> drama. We reenacted it and had actors playing them. And then later the TV movie came out. And it was called Betty Broderick, A Woman Scorned. <laughs> and so we found a lot of that. that the, the way we were presenting the stories were being picked up by Hollywood. Uh, there were, you know, three Amy Fisher, you know, Long Island Lolita movies. Yes. There was the Texas Cheerleader Mom movie, things like that. They were taking the, the templates from our shows. Um, we left, we left uh, hard copy after three seasons in 1993. Uh, Peter and I had another show called Premier Story, which happened, which coincided with the O.J. Simpson murders. Uh, then from there, I moved on to other type shows, uh, documentaries, uh, the, the clip shows, the, the clip show boom in the in the early 2000s, which was you know taking pieces of videos of car crashes and. You know, people hitting themselves in the crotch with baseball bats, oh, those sort of shows. Yeah. <laughs> Wrote a lot of those kind of things. I find it fascinating, uh, and have for some time, because I, I not only have been a writer for a very long time, but I've also been teaching it for a while now here in Pittsburgh. And uh, what I find fascinating is the use of the word story, is that we uh, use, uh, well, we tell stories in news, and we tell stories in fiction. And they're both stories. And they both follow a similar form so that the, uh, the, the listener, the reader, the whoever is able to understand how we're communicating that tale. So, so you, you understood storytelling quite well. Yes. And I think we sort of, not trying to brag or anything, but we sort of pioneered a bit the long-form storytelling um, on television and on television news. Mm-hmm. You know, we're used to that five-second sound bite, the 10-second sound bite, and telling a story in 90 seconds. Or t- you know, if a story, if you're doing local news, and even if you know, you're doing these entertainment shows that are on TV now, a long story is, is two minutes. Right. You know, we, would, we would do stories over the course of a week. We got a lot of resistance from it, but it raided, and people, people watched these shows, and we were able to tell stories differently. Well, now, that... I've always been far more attracted to real-life stories, nonfiction. Um, in a narrative form, right? But, what we did with but once you want, so you, you correct me if you think I'm wrong. But you know, once you take a story, even a nonfiction story, a biography, or however you want to put it, and you form it into a script and hire actors to do it, it ceases to be uh, a real story. It becomes some kind of a fictionalized version of reality. Well, the way that Peter Brennan used to explain it 
because he came from newspapers, and that was they sort of that's how these guys sort of reinvented television. These Australians that worked for Rupert Murdoch, they weren't his television people; they were his newspaper editors and his magazine reporters. And Brennan would say, if you're telling a story in a, in a newspaper or you're writing a story, you're writing a story. You're you're telling it. You're 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 forming it. You're sure. putting people, you know, an image in their minds. Well, here, if you do it correctly on television, how do you translate that to television? If you don't have the you know the actual images well you do it through not necessarily the um, reenactments where you're showing people's faces or whatever but you might see a hand on a gun and mm -hmm. you know you're basically illustrating a story that you've written right right y so of course yes it does take you away from the you know the brutal reality of something but it's just a way of, il of illustrating a story that other people would say well we can't put this on television because there's, there's no picture here but but you're still uh, I mean, I, I truly believe you're still creating for the reader or the viewer a character or characters in some kind of a tale with a beginning, middle, and end. And that, that it's following a who, what, where, when, why, how, just like a journalist would to a large extent. And so you are telling a story, and that's how they relate. That's why I think it, the transition, I'm going to guess, for, from, for you to go from pure journalism over to slightly less journalistic and more storytelling all the way over to full storytelling wasn't probably that difficult to do. No, it, it wasn't. It was, it was a, a really a natural progression. Yeah. And a lot of it came from frustration that I had when I was working just on, for straight local television news. I was frustrated that stories weren't able to be told more fully, more colorfully, and the fact that when you when you work for for network news, television news, you find that everybody wants to make sure they get the same story. Yeah. When when you're watching, when you're sitting with your news director and you're watching that night's broadcast, you've got three screens in front of you and you're seeing what the competition got. It's like, well, why didn't we have exactly what they had? The difference was once we went over to the tabloid world, the idea was to get a story that no one else had, not do the same story everybody had, mm -hmm. and to tell it in a very different way. And and, and in some ways, uh, it's got to be filled with conflict in order to drive the audience to you, correct? Oh, sure. Conflict, emotion, you know, the quote, bells and whistles. Uh, that was also why the, the, the genre got a lot of criticism. It had a lot to do with the promotion, and the stories were promoted like tabloid newspapers mm -hmm. you take the wildest elements of it and sensationalize it the stories themselves were told pretty well i think when, when we did them at least uh it was the promotions of the stories that made people say oh look how sensationalistic all this is it it, it, it always has to appear in some way on a show like that somewhat salacious yeah right you got to bring you're a carnival barker bringing people into the tent right right That's your tent yeah. Well, and you're not focusing on stories of, of people petting their cats. You're, uh, it, it's, it's violence, it's death, it's mayhem, it's whatever. That's not, you know, something that's a little bit unpleasant. Well, I'll tell you, back then, uh, this is 1989, right around, around the turn of, of the 90s there, th things were changing technologically. Uh, you, you, you had microwave trucks and you were able to get images from small towns when, when in the past you weren't able to. You could just you know, shoot and get and satellite your material back overnight or, you know, during the day. In, in the 80s and 90s, network television had this idea of a thing called flyover country. Yeah. And that was basically America. They would cover Washington, 
the East Coast. Occasionally they go out to, to Hollywood if there was a, an earthquake or an award ceremony or a famous actor died. But they really didn't cover the center of the country. You had guys like Charles Corral who would drive around and do a story of somebody who constructed a, a Liberty Bell out of butter or do a story of a guy who did wind chimes. What we did at A Current Affair, and this was before the days of the Internet, every day we would have small-town papers delivered to our office, and I would go through a couple of hundred newspapers a day. <laughs> wow. Just going through it, looking at the headlines, and start seeing, wow, look at this. Here's the story of a preacher who burned down the church and ran away with the organist with all the money. Look at this story here. Here's a, a wife who shot her husband. And we started seeing patterns around the country. And we basically had these stories totally to ourselves. No one was covering them. And that's why we were, we were taking these small-town stories. For instance, there was a, a funny story about a, uh, a sheriff. His name was actually Sheriff Corky. And <laughs> the sheriff had borrowed a, had rented a, a video cassette recorder, a video yeah. cassette player. And he brought it back to the, the, the store where he had rented it. But he had left the tape in. And, of course, he had recorded himself and his, and his wife or his girlfriend doing some sort of hanky-panky. <laughs> and one of his political rivals got a hold of the tape, made copies of it, and put it on everybody's car windshields the next day. Lovely. And so that, so we, were, we were finding these patterns that were going on in America, this sort of underbelly of culture that was accepted but not talked about. And that's what, that's what a current affair and, and hard copy and shows like, like that did. It sort of gave vision to the the rest of the country that wasn't being covered by the networks it was I mean, everything everything changed with the oj simpson murders that's where suddenly all the networks were covering the uh, story that they at first wouldn't even touch right that wasn't something they would do it, it, it's it, and it, you were pre-internet yeah so you were telling stories that would uh create uh their own sort of uh, um tornado force news tornado and and you had to stoke that fire in other ways. That's why it was the the advertising for it was so um, prurient, I guess. Uh, yeah, and then the advertising dollars weren't as much because there were campaigns against the shows. There was, this, this is around the time I think they were doing campaigns against you know explicit words on record albums. There were there were certain groups that were going against shows like us and. Classifying us in the same terms of like the Jerry Springer, Morton Downey, you know, quote trash TV shows that were out there, it was interesting. But I'll tell you the one thing that it did. I was talking about this undercurrent in America and this this, this, this accepted subculture or underground morality. You go back to Charles Corral, and Charles Corral again was the man who was bringing America to network news. Today I'm in Idaho, and here's a man who's made a statue of Paul Bunyan. Well, after his death. It was found out that Charles Corral had a secret family out in Idaho. <laughs> he had a secret wife. He had a secret daughter who he was putting through college. And that was the alternative morality that was out there in America that we were bringing out at the time. And if only Charles Corral had told the truth about what was going on in America, and it wasn't all Liberty Bells made out of butter, <laughs> maybe there wouldn't have been a need for tabloid television in the first place. That's true. That's true. It's always amazing what, what secrets come bubbling up, sometimes when people are alive, but frequently when they're gone. Yeah. Um, all right, so, uh, and then we'll get on to the book here in a moment, but all right, so you then, 
How did you wind up going from all of that into uh, working on fictional shows? Well, I started a production company. I had a, um, a partner by the name of Brett Hudson. Brett was of the uh, Hudson Brothers. Yeah. The Hudson Brothers. Yeah, the Hudson Brothers. Sure. You remember them? Yeah, the, the Hudson Brothers. Uh, back in the seventies, they, they were a rock and roll band who became television comedy stars. Yeah. Uh, Brett and I met uh, when we were both hired to be producers of Miramax Television's first reality show. It was called The Best Money Can Buy. It was going to be a magazine show where you could find the, the best there is of everything. And this was working for Harvey Weinstein back in, in around, around 2000. Speak, speaking of salacious and rumors. Well, the funny part about it was we were, at, we were in L.A. Harvey Weinstein was in New York. And we had finished a, a, an edit of the show. And all we had to do was get the tape to Harvey, and Harvey had to approve the tape, and he had to he had to say it was okay, and then we could move on to the next step. Well, Harvey at the time was I don't want to say buying, but he was he was buying the Oscar for uh, Shakespeare in Love, which right. was the best picture that that year. Right. And every time our office would call Harvey, they'd say, "Oh, he's out, he's out in his limousine," and he would be in a limousine with models. We would hear, and he kept sending us models to interview to become. Uh, to become host of this show. And it went on for about four months. We couldn't get any kind of approval from Harvey Weinstein because he was too busy riding around in his limousine. We never heard anything <laughs> criminal about Harvey Weinstein, but he had the reputation of being a man about town. Yeah. Uh, Brett and I went from there. We started our own company. We, we did documentaries. Uh, we did documentaries for Court TV, for Bravo. We did a documentary series on the White House uh, screening room, the White House Theater. And with Brett, we uh, did our first film. We did the we we wrote and produced Cloud Nine uh, with Burt Reynolds, right? Brett's old friend Al Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather. Yeah. And Million Dollar Baby. And Million Dollar Baby, with correct? Clint Eastwood, yeah. Uh, Al Al Ruddy's done lots of stuff. Al Ruddy was is really the uh, you know a Mount Rushmore figure in Hollywood. Tremendous guy. We met Al. He was sort of. At the time, sort of in the, the autumn of his career, not really doing too much. And we would have lunch with Al every day. We, Brett and I had a company that partnered with Al's company to do a series for Showtime. And we would sit and talk at this Chinese restaurant in Beverly Hills every afternoon. And one day Al said, you know, I was, I was back in New York and I was visiting my, my son on campus. And he had a picture of, of this woman on his, on his wall. And it was Gabrielle Reese the beach volleyball player. Right. And I, and I said, I didn't know you were into beach volleyball. And he said, no, my son said, no, I'm not. I'm into Gabrielle Reese. I think she's really hot. <laughs> and we said, well, wouldn't that be funny? We should do a movie about, uh, about beach volleyball. How about a team made up of strippers? That's where our minds went immediately. And we thought it was very funny. And we wound up writing the script. And Al, of course, had produced the, the movie Cannonball Run, the movies with, uh, with Burt Reynolds. Right. And also The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds. And so we kind of wrote the story for Burt Reynolds and wound up actually getting the funding and making the picture. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it, it was... Uh, so that was your introduction into the, the fictional part of Hollywood, yeah? Yeah, that really was. That, was. that was the introduction into, you know, motion pictures, yeah. And, all right, so... Along the way, you've worked on this, that, and the other thing, but I, I kind of want to bring us up to where you are now, 
which is uh, you've written this book with Jeff Abraham called The Show Won't Go On. Yeah. What was the the impetus to write this? Tell, tell, first of all, tell the audience, our listeners, a little bit about what the book focuses on. The Show Won't Go On is probably the first book to focus on the phenomenon of performers who died on stage <laughs> during a performance. Uh, yeah. I had written a book called Tabloid Baby, which was sort of my tabloid television memoirs and expose uh, back in 1999. Jeff Abraham, uh, who's a very well-known publicist here, very big, actually in the comedy world, he represents a lot of comedians and everybody. He's a, he represented the George Carlin estate after Carlin's death, and actually represented Carlin for the last decade of his life. Uh, Jeff represented my book back in 2000, and we worked together, became friends, bonded over our love of uh, the Beatles and Jerry Lewis. And so we, we, we remained friends over the last 20 years. Well, about three years ago, Jeff was over, we were speaking, and he said, you know, I always wanted to write a book about performers who died on stage, died on the way home from a show, died on the way to a show. I mean, you have people like Hank Williams who died on the way to a show. Harry Chapin died on the way to a show. Patsy Cline was killed on the way home from a show. Yeah. Um, I said, that's, that's, that's a pretty fun idea. I've got a little time on my schedule. Let's, let's do it. And he's like, well, okay. So we started doing the research. And we got to over a thousand cases. Oh, wow. When we realized, you know what, we, we should narrow this down. Let's narrow this down to just, we have enough where we can do performers who died on stage. And by a stage, we're talking... Uh, a theater, a nightclub, a circus tent. Um, performing. Arena. Performing. Uh, performing. Uh, we got that down to about 500 cases. Um, we, we wrote the book. We, we threw everything in for our first draft of the book. We Fi- did the research. 500 cases? We had, we had 500 cases. Oh, my goodness. So we had to narrow that down after, after getting the book out, dealing with an agent, dealing with some publishers. We, we realized, okay, first of all, we originally had people who died in front of the movie camera, television cameras on television sets. So we got rid of all of them. We said, let's just we'll save that for another book. We, of course, we, we didn't include athletes or bullfighters or people that would go into an arena or a ring knowing that death is in the cards. These were, these were performers. Right. Um, so we still we had that down to about 500 cases. We narrowed it down to the top 99 that we felt were the most shocking, bizarre, and historic. When we finally got the book sold to the Chicago Review Press, they said, can you get it down to about 50? I was like, well, not really. So we wound up with about 60 stories, and then we reference others. And in the end, the book has about 200 cases are listed in the book Hmm. of performers who died on stage. You know, our other problem with it, man, is that people kept dying on stage. Every time we think we were done with the book, we'd find out that there, you know, on our web, we have a website, the show won't go on dot com, where we have a page where we're just keeping track of performers who've, who've passed on performing in 2019, and we've got about 25. Wow, re- really? L- L- you know, we managed to we managed to get one extra person in. There was a comedian in the UK named Ian Cognito. Ian he Cognito. was performing at a comedy club. I believe in about February of this year, and he said to the audience, "You know, let's you know, imagine if I had a stroke and I woke up speaking Welsh." Got a big laugh, 
Then he sat down on a chair on the stage and died. Oh, my goodness. And everyone thought that this was part of the show. And uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, and that made, that made international news. And that's why we, we spoke to the publisher and we said, we've got to add the story in. So we managed to get that one last story in. So, so, so uh, you know, I, I, I've read through the book. And, of course, one of, sort of in line with that, with what you just said about Ian Cognito, which is a hilarious name, um, I really have long known about the story of Dick Sean, who, you know, a lot of today's um, viewers would not know who Dick Sean was. But can you tell a little bit about the Dick Sean story and, and who he was? Well, first, really, we have to get back to, again, who was Dick Sean? Dick Sean was really one of the most influential, innovative comedians of his time. He exactly. came up in the late 50s along with people like. Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters and Dick Gregory. He wound up being a great influence on comedians uh, like Andy Kaufman, Robin Williams, and Gary Shandling. Mm-hmm. But most people know him from the movie The Producers, the original one with, uh, that Mel Brooks did with Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Dick Sean played LSD, the, the hippie who they hired to portray Adolf Hitler in Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> And he's also, he had a wild part in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yes. That's kind of where people know Dick Sean. Although he had a, a big television career, he was a Broadway leading man, he, he was a singer, he was a dancer. But first off, he was a comedian. And he had a show called The Second Greatest Entertainer in the Whole Wide World. And that was his one-man show. And towards the end of his life, he performed that everywhere. In 1987, he was planning to bring it to the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. So he had some new material to try out. And in April, on April 17th, he went down to San Diego, to the University of San Diego Auditorium there, to try out some material. And he was doing his act, and it was the, it was the usual surrealistic, wild stuff that he did, uh, with, with a catch. I should mention this. Dick Sean would open the act by lying down on stage covered in newspapers. So when the audience walked into the theater, they didn't realize he was on the stage. It was, it was perfectly, you know, muscle and breathing control. He didn't move. Then when the audience was all seated, it was time for the show to begin, the lights would come down, and Dick Sean would arise up from the newspapers. And when it came time for intermission, Dick Sean would say, you know, I'm going to take a nap right now. Or he would just fall down and lie down, sleeping or comatose throughout intermission, and then rise again for the second half of the show. So the, all the stagehands were warned, look, if this guy happens to fall down, stay away from his part of the act. Okay, so he gets about 20 minutes into his show, and he says, you know, imagine, let's imagine there was a nuclear war outside, and everyone, no one survived in the world except the people in this theater, and I would be your leader. And with that, he face-planted onto the stage uh. and just laid there. And there was laughter. And then as he remained not moving, there was uncomfortable laughter, people saying, hey, take his wallet, and things like that. Um, sadly, his, his son, Dick Sean's son, Adam, was his stage manager and stage director, and he was at the back of the theater. And he really said, you know, my dad doesn't usually fall like that and doesn't hit his head like that when he falls. That was pretty hard. Uh, he got on the headset, and he said to the stage, go on and check on him. Could you please just check on him? So the stagehand walked out to, you know, to laughter, and then walked out again, and 
Adam said, well, what happened? What did he say? He goes, well, he didn't say anything. He wasn't really moving. And at that point, uh, Adam Sean realized something had happened, and he rushed toward the stage. Uh, the, the theater happened to be next door to a teaching hospital, so there were already, you know, you would have to say, is there a doctor in the house? There were four doctors in the front row. Everybody <laughs> oh, went to work on Dick Sean, but he did not survive. Well, he was long gone at that point. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the one of the stranger stories because it seems so much a part of the act that you people didn't know what to do with it. Well, that's the thing. The, the worst the worst job you can have when you die on stage is to be a comedian because when you fall, people think it's part of the act. Sure. And when someone says, "Is there a doctor in the house?" Well, you're going to get a laugh from that, and that's happened numerous times. Mm-hmm. That line, "Is there a doctor in the house?" Just slays. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally. <Yeah. laughs> so, all right. So, how how did you um, put this together? Where did you find these different people? What was your research like? Well, the research was the deep dive. Uh, you know, we start with the internet. Then from there, we go to newspaper files. You know, Variety has has um, volumes of old, of old stories. You know, microfilm at libraries. Jeff and I went in a couple of different directions. Both of us are experienced at research. Jeff's a comedy historian. Uh, he has actually Jeff has the largest collection of comedy albums, uh, I think, in the world. Really. And whenever there are documentaries or, or films done, they go to Jeff, you know, to get those the resource of of comedy albums. Interesting. We both know how to do research, and so you know, one thing you find out is that you know, Wikipedia believe it or not, it's got a lot of misinformation on it. <laughs> and one thing we've, we found is that we were able to correct a lot of misconceptions that have been out there for decades, uh, just because stories float around that aren't true. Like what? We, we, we went to the source. Like, give us an example. Well, people think that, that Dick Sean died you know, in, in a comedy club, for instance, that sort of thing. People think that certain people died on stage. Oh, did you, you got to do Granny Clampett from... Uh, from the Beverly Hillbillies. Did Irene Ryan. On Broadway? Irene Ryan, she was Irene in Pippin. Right. I was like, well, no, she didn't die on stage. She had a, a, a stroke on stage and then went back to California and she didn't die for about another three months, four months. But So she doesn't, she doesn't count. Um, she doesn't count. The, the, the main one, the, the, the biggest story was the story of J.I. Rodale. Uh, Mr. Rodale was a longevity expert, a natural foods expert, a health nut. <laughs> who was a guest on the Dick Cavett show yeah. when he died while being interviewed on the Dick Cavett show. Um, this is something that everyone remembers. They all remember the show where the guy said on the Dick Cavett show, I'm going to live to be 100, and then died on the Dick Cavett show. We, we, spoke, <laughs> to Dick, we spoke to Dick Cavett, and he says, maybe um, you know, three or four people come up from every month and say, Dick, I'll never forget the look on your face when that guy died on your show. <laughs> And Dick says, really, were you in the studio audience? Because the show never aired. Like, what? <laughs> and people think the show aired, because he told the story the next day. Uh, Pete Hamill, the, the newspaper editor and writer, yeah. was actually being interviewed by Cavett at the time that Mr. Rodale collapsed in the seat next to him. And he wrote about it. So people think that they've seen it. It's, it's become sort of ingrained as the most famous you know, talk show death. Uh, thanks to a good friend of ours who happens to uh, work with the Cavett organization, he allowed us to view 
and record the audio of the show. We were, Jeff and I were probably the, the first civilians to actually, to actually watch it and see what happened. So we were able to correct a lot of factoids that have been out there for years. For instance, it said that it's sort of famous that when um, Cavett was interviewing Pete Hamill, uh, Mr. Rodale made a snoring sound, and that Cavett leaned over and said, excuse me, Mr. Rodale, are we boring you? Uh, that never happened. He never said that. Huh. Things, little things like that. You know, when, when it happened, Cavett and, and Mr. Uh, sorry, Cavett and Pete Hamill both knew immediately something was wrong, and there was a look of you know, shock and alarm on both their faces. Interestingly enough, Cavett told us when he realized that Rodale was in the process of dying uh, on, his, on his stage, he looked at the audience and he was about to say, is there a doctor in the house? But he stopped himself because he knew that if he said that, he'd get a laugh. Wow. So he didn't say that. He said something like, you know, right. so, someone who can help. So when you're doing this deep dive... Did you travel to do all that? Did you go find various libraries, or was it mostly done from California? It was mostly done from California. Um, we did a lot of interviews with people, with survivors and witnesses, and that was very interesting. For instance, we spoke with, we met with um, Dick Sean's son, Adam, and that also gave us a real you know, sense of, of how serious this, this book was. Because we had some agents, the publishers say, well, you know, you've got to make it funny and snarky, and you've got to make it, you know, you've got to make people laugh with this stuff. Now, of course, there's, there's some stuff that's humorous and ironic. You know, the woman who was who's saying, please don't talk about me when I'm gone, and then died to a standing ovation. <sighs> there's I, I, irony in all of this. <laughs> but when, when you talk to a survivor, you talk to someone, and in the case of Adam Sean, you know, his father died in 1987, and he's crying during the interview. Uh, you realize, you know, these are real people here, and they also, almost to a person, they were very happy to speak with us because they wanted their loved one, their relative, their friend, to be remembered for more than the way they, they passed. Of course. And that's what we made sure that we did in this book, is we tell the story of, of, of their careers. Some of them are, are very famous, some are obscure, and they all sort of, you know, stand or lie shoulder to shoulder here, you know, through this sort of glorious exit, you know, dying, doing what they loved, as they say. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Gallo's humor uh, because I just think that uh, the alternative is not, not fun. And yeah. uh, I would rather remember someone fondly or in, in a light way rather than in a really dark, heavy way. Of course, there are many exceptions to that, but I, but I, I, I'm a fan of Gallo's humor, so I, I think it's it's good sometimes when you have this, so that you can get that perspective on it. T- tell the story about Harry Einstein, which I think is fascinating. Well, Harry Einstein was a dialect comic back in the in the 19. 19- Explain what a dialect comic is. I was going <laughs> to tell you. Oh. He took on the character. He was he was Jewish. Harry Einstein. He took on the character of. Park Your Carcass. Park Your Carcass. A Greek diner owner at first. <laughs> Later, I think Park Your Carcass had a radio show where he was a politician. But Park Your Carcass was his character. And he was very well known on the radio. He was in a couple of films. He was a member of the Friars Club. By 1958, he wasn't in great shape. He had some heart issues. He basically did his 
work at Friars Roasts and Friars Benefits. Uh, by the way, Harry Einstein happened to be the father of Albert Brooks well, and Albert, Bob Einstein. Albert Einstein. That's how you can tell his dad was a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Albert Einstein. Now you know why Albert Brooks changed his name to Albert, Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks, yeah. Um, so he was the, the father of Albert Brooks and Super Dave, uh, Bob Einstein, who, who passed last year. Yeah. Um, there was a Friars Club testimonial dinner for Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz at the Beverly Hilton Hotel yeah. in, in Beverly Hills. And they had the dais, and everyone was up there from Milton Berle to Sammy Davis Jr. Art Linkletter was the, was the host. And Park Your Carcass came out and made one of his rare appearances. And there's audio of this. Uh, we have it on our website where you can hear him do his act. And it was a lot of one-liners and funny things. And the audience went crazy. I mean, he, no pun intended, killed. And you could hear, you could hear people hitting the table and punching, banging on the tables with laughter, etc. He did his act and went back to sit down at the seat at the dais. And Art Linkletter said, you know, why doesn't this guy have his own television show? He is so funny. And Harry Einstein said, yeah, why not? And with that, he collapsed into Milton Berle's lap. Um, and then at that point, all pandemonium bro- broke loose. They said, is there a doctor in the house? And there happened to be about a hundred doctors in the house because it was uh, Beverly Hills, it was the Friars Club, and it was a benefit for a leper colony. Uh, so a lot of doctors ran up toward the dais. Milton Berle at this point screamed over to a young singer named Tony Martin and said, do something, you know, just try to sing a song. So Tony Martin went up, they struck up the band, and he sang a song called There's No Tomorrow. <laughs> Again, that you can't make this kind of stuff up department. And, and by the um, way, Milton Berle's lap has its own reputation. Well, exactly. He, was, he fell there and met his nephew. Um, <laughs> it, it was very interesting. They, they, they brought Harry Einstein backstage. They carried him out. George Burns and others and Jack Benny all carried him backstage backstage where five doctors went to work on it. Oh, my goodness. And they did sort of a MacGyver thing. They tore a lamp cord out of the wall, cut through the wires, cut open his chest with a pen knife, took his heart out, and, and tried to shock it back with the, with the electricity from the, oh, uh, really? from the wall. It was an amazing sort of, sort of story there. Uh, in the end, they w- were unable to save him. Well, yeah, they took his heart out of his chest in a, in a kitchen. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Holy moly! Uh, um, all right, so um, uh, what do, are those stories among your favorites, or do you have any others that are your favorite stories? I have some of my favorite stories are ones that are a little less known. The, the, the story that we, we start off with is a story of a woman named Jane Little. Uh, Jane was eighty-seven years old. She had she played the um, the double bass for the Atlanta Symphony. She was four foot eleven. The bass was about seven feet tall. Right. Uh, she had recently won the Guinness World Record for the longest tenure with the symphony orchestra. Hmm. She actually had stayed on for an extra season, although she had been ill, to get that world record. She was a feisty little gal, and everybody loved her. And it was the last concert of the season. It was a pops concert on a Sunday afternoon, and they were in the final bars of the encore when she fell over dead. Ooh. And the name of the song that they were performing was There's No Business Like Show Business. <laughs> and 
that was one of those stories where, you know, we spoke to people who were in the orchestra, you know, all youngsters, guys in their 60s or their 50s uh, and younger, and they would say, you know what, it really was a great way for Jane to go. She didn't go in a, in a nursing home or in a hospital, you know, on a, on a ventilator. She was surrounded by people who loved her, surrounded by her friends with an audience. You know, what a way to go, which I guess you can say when you're 87 years old. Well, I think it's my belief that anyone who, first of all, let me back up, we're all going there at some point. Nobody's ever escaped it that I'm aware of. And, and, no. and if you can do it in a, in a time and place that you love, that you're comfortable with and that you love, I would say that that's as good as it gets. Wouldn't you? I would think so. That's a way to go. I mean, we've, we've spoken two performers. We, we talked to um, Penn Jillette from Penn & Teller yeah. in, in the book, and he said he, he looks at it statistically about the, the amount of time that he spends on stage when he's awake, uh, and he thinks there's a good chance he will die on stage. He would like to go that way if he can. Yeah, that's, 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 that's where he's lived his whole life. So he, and, and, he loves it there, you know. Yeah, I think if you, you get, you know, in a, you know, if you're young and something, you know, we've had young people who died in accidents on stage, et cetera. That, those, those, are, those are tragic. Um, but when you get the people that are, that are old, and we, we've found that a lot of old-school entertainers that we, that we looked up or that we talked to really do, they've said that. That's the way I want to go. I want to go on stage, you know. Sure. And, uh, yeah, that makes sense. All right, so how many drafts of the book did you go through? How long did it take you to actually pull this whole thing together? Jeff and I worked on this for about three years. Wow. Yeah, we did. We worked about about three years on this. Yeah, from the research, we began the writing. I'm trying to think, that began the writing around the beginning of 2017, and yeah, and so and, we we spent about two years writing it. And then, of course, you had to go through the whole publishing process, which is a whole process unto itself. Um, yeah. What would you say was were the were the biggest or maybe perhaps the big the single big challenge in conceiving and writing the book? What were the big challenges? The big challenge was first of all making sure that we had everything right. Um, the, you know the research and the fact checking, which the publishers were very good at helping us with. That that was a big part of it, and then also figuring out which stories to include and which ones not to sure, include. Sure, sure. We, we we did a an appendix where we just threw in 50 more uh, in the appendix. Did, did you and have a criterion as to how... Opened up into a bigger story. You know? Sure. Did, did, did you have criterion as to what you what was included and not? Okay. You basically had to be stricken or collapse on stage. <laughs> Goodness. And we'll give you a 10-hour window to pass on. <laughs> All right? Because, I mean, again, people collapse on stage and, and die six months later. The, 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 the two, we do have two exceptions, because they were both so uh, striking. Um, one of them is Jackie Wilson, uh, the great singer. Yes. Jackie Wilson, who collapsed on stage during a Dick Clark rock and roll revival in, at the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Um, he was singing the song Lonely Teardrops, his, his hit. Right, and there came, comes the line where he says, "My heart is crying, crying," and he said, "My heart, my heart," and grabbed his chest and fell backwards Oof. with a heart attack, slammed his head on the stage and had a stroke. Uh, he remained in a coma or a semi-coma for the next eight years before he died. Um, we included his story, and 
we also include the story of Curtis Mayfield. Uh, Superfly. Superfly and from the impressions. Sure. Um, he was on stage at an outdoor concert in Queens, New York, in 1990, when a gust of wind came down and blew down all the speakers and rigging on top of him, uh, paralyzed him from the neck down, and it took him you know, nine years to die. But for the most part, everyone else, you basically had to be stricken on stage and, and, and die. It was a 10-hour window. We kind of gave it. That sunlight maybe hung on for a bit. You know, we found a lot of times people, you know, die on stage. They don't pronounce them dead until they're at the hospital, et cetera, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And also the stories. I mean, we had to make sure it couldn't just be a book where it's like, you know, okay, he died, he died, he died, he died, she died. It, we, had, we, we had to have people who had very diverse stories, you know, and, and we've got the story of the, the man who was the world's expert on African violets out of uh, Nebraska. And he traveled the world lecturing about African violets from his, and he wrote a book and he had a flower shop in Nebraska, but his dream was to be an actor because he caught the community theater bug. Uh, when he turned 64, he and his wife closed the flower shop and moved to Las Vegas to be near their son uh, and his daughter, his son and his wife, uh, who was pregnant and was about to have a child. And he got to Las Vegas and got a job as the star of a show in community theater. And he went on stage and had a heart attack on stage and died. Uh, the name of the show was The Art of Murder. <laughs> he, when he died, he had a prop pistol in his pocket, and the, uh, the police at the emergency room were used to actual shooting deaths there. Actually, you know, called his wife and said, should we do an investigation of this? He had a gun, and I said, no, no. <laughs> it was a prop, <laughs> don't worry about it. And I... then he died in the hospital, and then 12 hours later... His grandchild was born in the same hospital. Oh, wow. So we spoke to his son, and he said, you know, it's, you know, you talk about the circle of life. There you go. That is. I, I was, for a second there, I thought you were going to tell me when he, when he collapsed on stage and fell, the gun fired. <laughs> that, that, would, that would be... Oh, no, we've had some shoot... We've had, we have had some shooting deaths on stage, yeah. Like who? Like who? Well, the, 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 the one that I guess people know the most, if you're into rock and roll, is Dimebag Daryl. Abbott. He was in the band called Pantera. Yeah. He was in a nightclub, uh, I think it was about 2008. Let me see if I have his. It was 2004. He was in Columbus, Ohio on stage when a deranged ex-Marine ran out from behind the speakers, uh, shot him in the face, uh, killed him on stage during his opening song, killed three other people. Uh, and that was a, a story where a policeman showed up within the first minute and a half of this happening, walked into the club where the gunman had the drum technician in a headlock with a gun to his head, uh, holding him hostage as if it was in some kind of movie scene. And from across the room, the cop shot with a shotgun and killed the gunman. Oof. A little different then. Than just collapsing. Yeah, that's quite different. Yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, so there's um, all sorts of excitement at these shows. So, all right, well, so we are rapidly coming toward the, the end of today's episode, and we've been speaking um, for uh, almost an hour with Bert Kearns, about, mainly about The Show Won't Go On, his new book with Jeff Abraham, um, and it had some fantastic 
stories from this book. I think anybody that uh, that's interested in show business and how it doesn't always turn out well um, should uh, check this book out for sure. So I'm I'm wondering, Bert, in in all of your your experiences and not just in researching the book and so on, do you have a story or two that you can tell us that would be um, perhaps uh, uh, oddball, quirky, weird, offbeat, or just plain funny? Well, I think most of everything I've done has been oddball and, and quirky. <laughs> well, good. Tell us I, something. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I can think of a couple. When I was when I was working at NBC News, uh, local news, uh, at one point I was writing the the, the personality bits, the little uh, celebrity stories that go at the end of the show. And I would practice my writing. I would practice by saying, okay, I'm going to write this story. It'll have it take up 20 seconds. All right, now let me rewrite it and see if I can get it down to 10 seconds. I bet I can write this story and get it down to five seconds. Mm-hmm. And really honing my writing that way. Well, anyway, I wrote a story once, and it was just a typical one where I wrote about the late Abe Vigoda. And so I'm sitting there at work, and the next day, as it turned out, um, one, of my, one of my colleagues went into the NBC commissary, and standing there holding a tray was Abe Vigoda. Right. Who wasn't, didn't happen to be dead. So, so, for, so for our younger listeners, explain who Abe Vigoda was. Pagoda was the actor who played, I believe he played Tessio in The Godfather, but he's known as Fish from Barney Miller. Right. He was a hangdog old actor who everybody always thought was dead. He, he, was, uh, he, was, he looked old in his 20s. <laughs> and it became a joke later in life where they, he would come out and people would, would, would refer to him as you know, the late Abe Pagoda. I was one of the first to do it on, uh, on television. And the next day, I got a tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Abe Vigoda. And he said, I'm not dead. And <laughs> you've never seen someone apologize and be so quick to write a correction. <laughs> but, there, but corrections are, that, that, that's also a, a bane in television. When I was working for CBS Nightwatch, I worked for them, I, I, I worked for the CBS Morning News while I was at Nightwatch. I worked there for one day. And I got there, and it was... Um, Bill Curtis was the host. Uh, Bill Curtis, the anchorman, he was in Washington that day, and his co-host was Diane Sawyer. Right. And Diane Sawyer was there, and I got to write for Diane Sawyer. And it was great, and you write these little news items for them, and then you sit back, you sit up all night writing the stories, and you sit and watch the show. And I watched as she wrote, as she read the story, and she said, today General Motors is recalling four cars. And she did the story. And I see, I see the editor go crit, jump up in the air and realize that in all the times I had rewritten the story, I left out the word million, that they had, they had recalled four million cars, but she just <laughs> reading the teleprompter wrote four cars. <laughs> and then I had, to, I had to write the correction and then was never invited back to see this morning. <laughs> They're just four cars. They recalled all those cars over four Yeah, cars. that would have been as bad or newsworthy. <laughs> Do you have any more? Well, I, there, I mean, there's a few. One of my, 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 my greatest um, diversions was with Jerry Lewis. Yeah. When I was at, when I was at Channel uh, 4 News at NBC News in New York in the late 80s, uh, I had a friend who worked upstairs at Saturday Night Live. She was the assistant director. And in 1987, she had a job as the assistant director on the Jerry Lewis Telethon in Las Vegas. And I happened to be a great Jerry Lewis fan. I was then. And I said, can you please get me a job? as a production assistant, I'll do anything if I could just spend, I want to stay up all night, all weekend with Jerry. 
can you get me a gig? And she's like, all right, sure. So she wound up getting me a job as a you know, volunteer production assistant on the 1987 Jerry Lewis telethon uh, from Las Vegas. I arrived at Caesar's Palace and went to the trailer outside, and they said, who, who are you? I said, well, I'm a production assistant. They said, great, get over here. Jerry was just here. You've got to, do, you've got to make a, a fix for us. It, this is important. This is coming right from Jerry. And I was in heaven. I'm like, oh, this is unbelievable. I sit down. This was the days, of course. It was a typewriter. And they plopped down in front of me the show rundown, a couple hundred pages. And it, that, it was a show that had all the camera instructions and, and who's who and what's going to be happening over the course of the telethon. And they handed me a, a bit of whiteout, a little bottle of whiteout and a typewriter. And they said, Jerry came in and he noticed this. You've got to make the correction at the top of every page. At the top of every page, it said, 1987 Muscular Dystrophy Telethon. I had to white out the words muscular dystrophy and type in the words Jerry Lewis. Oh, really? <laughs> because Jerry wanted everyone to know that it was the Jerry Lewis Telethon. And I was in heaven. <laughs> wow. So did you, get to, <laughs> did you get to meet Jerry? I did. I got, I got to meet Jerry. My, my main thing was I wanted to find out you know, at the end of every telethon, Jerry Lewis sings the, the, the song, You'll Never Walk Alone. Right. He cries, and then he drops the mic and walks off. And I wanted to see, I wanted, I wanted to see if, if he was for real, if that was like an act, if Jerry Lewis was just a showbiz guy who put on the fake tears, and then once he walks out off stage, he's like, okay, well, that, 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 that's it, I'm out of here. So I actually got to stand right at the edge of, of the stage, right off camera, when Jerry Lewis cried, dropped the mic, and walked off stage, and I got to see whether or not he was for real. And? Was he? He was for real. He was for he real. He fell into his wife's arms and wept for about another couple of minutes straight. Wow. You know, th thanks for that. Two years later, I was the um, managing editor of A Current Affair, and I wrote Jerry Lewis a letter, and I said, uh, you know, I told him what happened. I said, I, I was there two years ago, I'm a great fan of yours. I collect copies of the album Jerry Lewis Just Sings, and I would love to take a camera crew and follow you around behind the scenes of the telethon this year, which no one had ever done. Uh, a week later, I got a phone call from Jerry Lewis. He wrote, he said, you know, I read your letter. This is great. What do you want? Uh, the only thing I ask is that you don't turn this into like a two-minute piece. I said, Jerry, well, you know, the whole show. <laughs> and he said, you know, my, my staff will... Uh, We'll do whatever you want. Come on down. That, and we wound up spending a week with Jerry Lewis be, you know, behind the scenes. That's uh, cool. In preparation of the telethon. He, he, that's, that's really cool. Was he, was he nice to you? Because he had a bit of a reputation. Jerry Lewis has his reputation, but, but I, like, you know, Gilbert Godfrey said the same thing. He was always nice to me. Mm -hmm. And he was, for us, he was, he was a prince. He was Jerry Lewis. He did everything on camera for us that you would want Jerry Lewis to do. Sure, all you the shtick. He tap danced. He... He, he had a tantrum, he did his, you know, lady stuff, he, he joked around, he loved having the camera crew following him around. And then we, we sat down to do an interview, uh, which was supposed to be about five minutes, we, we did an hour-long interview uh, w with him. And that's, he was terrific, he was, he was a prince, he was great. Well, that's exciting. It's good to know because he, he does have that rep as being, you know, mercurial, and he's obviously clearly one of the great comic minds of all time, but he also had a reputation for being a little bit, uh, you know, angry at people every now and then. Oh, yeah, he was, I mean, Jerry, Jerry Lewis was crazy. I consider Jerry Lewis to be 
the you know the epitome um, of 20th century entertainment, the, the the greatest entertainer of of the 20th century. He was somebody. First of all, he was famous from the time he was about 18, and he, you know he had a career that lasted you know like more than 70 years, and he did everything. He was a you know he was a comedian, a writer, a singer, an orchestra conductor, a dancer, a director, a writer. You know he. he he you, mastered so many. You've you've left out parts. producer, and he was pr- a producer, of course. Yeah. Yeah, he did it. All. He did it all. It's correct. He was um, multi hyphenate and massively talented. Um, uh, Bert, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip that you can lend to our viewers who are our listeners who are um, maybe just trying to find their way into the business somehow, or maybe they've been in a little bit and are trying to get to the next level? All I can say is, you know, what I, I what I have always done is I've always said, keep your mouth shut and listen, and learn. And when you get into a gig, let's say as at an entry level position, learn everything you can from the people you're working with. I mean, one thing you find is, you know, it's less in the news business. If you're in New York City, you're working in news. You've got to have some chops to begin with to get in there and, and do it. I find in the entertainment business. People come from all over the place. A lot of them are don't have experience, but they get by on, on a mixture of you know arrogance and incompetence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that the key is to be competent and to listen and to learn. I mean, back in the old days, I would say to my friends I'd work. I'd say, you know, you know, my my secret I say is every day I iron my shirt. Go to go to work, iron your shirt, look good. You know, if you come to work now, people come to work in shorts and flip-flops and T-shirts, and they, they're, they're, they're spending more time worrying about who's going to play second base in, in the softball game after the show. But if you concentrate on the work when you're there, learn everything you can, and just, that, that's all I, I did from the beginning, was just, you know, watch people, you know, listen and learn. I think that's ex- I think that's extraordinarily important advice for anyone who's uh, working almost in any career, but especially in show business, yeah. is to to p- spend the requisite amount of time doing your due diligence by paying attention to those who have already done it, and and to to listen, listen more than you talk. That, yeah, I think that's very valuable advice. Well, um, uh, again, as a writer, can I just say one other thing? Sure. As a writer, I've known I have many friends who've started to write books and they get 50 pages in and they don't get past that yeah it's it's not a matter i, I found especially to me it's less a matter of talent than it is of just perseverance perseverance and if you're writing a book don't stop if you if you write one page a day in three months you'll have however i'm not good at math 90 pages right exactly you write two you know but get to that once. If you're at that hunt, you get to a hundred pages, you'll finish your book. But don't stop at fifty. I got some people stop. I got fifty pages. And I you know, keep keep writing. That's basically that's my main thing. Is just you know just wear them out. Just keep doing it. In in, in any case. Well, the on, the only way to uh, get to a finished draft is to write a first draft, which is invariably going to be poor, and you just need to keep writing. Yeah. Keep doing it. Indeed. Well, um, I've been speaking for the last hour plus to, or with Bert Kearns, and uh, I just wanted to say that for a show that focused so much on dead people, it's been a very lively show. 
I want to stay healthy. I want to thank you so much for coming on, Bert. And, and uh, thanks for having me. It's been a, a great chatting with you. I appreciate it. Thanks. And so we've come to the end of today's story beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.